Welcome back to the Commission Podcast and to our summer series covering the great talks and seminars from Revive, our annual festival. This one is from Andy Mason, entitled Faithful in Suffering. Enjoy. My name's uh, Andy. I work as pastor of St. John's Church in Chelsea and involved with the uh, Commission Network, uh, working with pastors uh, across our network and uh, the um, our training workshop. So it's great, great to be here with you now and to think about this uh, this big topic of God and suffering. So let me pray, and uh, you, you should get you should have a handout that'll help you to follow uh, what's um, what's uh, what's going on. But let's um, let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you that you are our great faithful God. You're not far from us. You are a covenant-keeping God, a God who surrounds us with your faithfulness. And that is our hope as we think about these these difficult questions now and this this amazing reality of who you are in the midst of our suffering. We pray you'd give us concentration, give us understanding, help us to know you above all in the midst of all the trials and the struggles of this world. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to think about a big theological question that has massive practical and personal consequences. And um, I think probably by the end of this, your head will hurt. And if it's any consolation, my head's going to hurt as well. Okay, so our heads are going to hurt together. Uh, but there is no way of tackling this uh, big question, which we're going to think about, can God suffer, without blowing our brains up a bit. Okay, so it, it, you, you have to do some technical theology, you have to exercise your brain, you, um, you have to learn some things. But hopefully, that won't be wasted, because hopefully we will know God better by the, uh, by the end. And, and even if we, we're left with lots of questions, those questions can help stimulate our spiritual growth and, and our knowledge of God. Um, now, the, the, the topic of this weekend is faithful and suffering, isn't it? And, and, and so we're thinking about God and who God is, and, and we, we need to kind of gra- grapple with this question of, uh, can God suffer? Sometimes it's something that we talk about, isn't it? Um, uh, people, we comfort one another. Be, uh, with this, with this reality, God suffers with us, um, and it's massive. And it's a massive question because who God is matters, doesn't it? It matters who God is. It matters because suffering matters, and it matters because we need to survive in the middle of suffering, and to help others survive in the middle of suffering. The Bible tells us, and we know actually from our own experience, that suffering is inevitable. The Bible tells us, Romans 8.22, that we live in a world of groaning. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, it says, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. We live in a world of pain and disasters. Uh, we live in a veil of tears. And all you need to do is live long enough, and you'll definitely experience that. And the question is, how do we keep going? Who is our God in the middle of that? Who is our God in the middle of our stresses and our pain? What will God do for us? How does he help us? What kind of God do we believe in? Now, the thing about theology is that theology is always very practical, and everyone in this room is actually a theologian. Because if you know God, you have a theology. It might not be totally conscious in your head, but you have a theology. So there's no way to avoid being a theologian you can only avoid being a bad one. Okay? So all of us are, have ideas about who God is and, and, and what he does in the middle of our, of our suffering. And we just need to think, think it through clearly. 
because the theological rubber always hits the road in our lives. Um, how we answer some of these questions is really important. And, and what I'm going to do uh, in this seminar now is I'm not going to do like a Bible exposition. What I'm going to do is I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to try and help us think through the logical inferences from Scripture. We're going to do what's called systematic theology which basically means drawing out the necessary consequences of what Scripture teaches. So it's not like a simple text you can go to and say, well, how do we answer this question? But you draw together lots of things, and you try and think it through. The other thing to say is, oh, you know, as, as we do this seminar, we're, in this room there is a variety of people. Um, some of us are here just out of curiosity. Some of us know people who are struggling. Some of us are facing really hard things in our lives. Maybe some of us thought this was an aerobics class and you're too embarrassed to actually walk out. But we're here for all kinds of different reasons, okay? And, and we come with different questions, different uh, agendas. So why don't you just turn to the person next to you and, and just say, you know, why, why have you come to this seminar? Why are you here? So, so here's, here's a statement. It's, it's, on your, uh, it's on your hand. I'm going to read this statement out. When I'm going through hard times... It is a real comfort to me that God has suffered as well. He knows me and he stands with me in my pain. And he knows what pain is because he has experienced it and he experiences it with me. Now what I want to do in this seminar, I want to show you while uh, I, I want to show you that this statement has, has some truths in it, but it is overall wrong. Okay? And this statement is actually not as comforting as it sounds. And actually there's a much better way and a much more comforting way of thinking about God and suffering. So there you are. There you, you know where I'm going with this, okay? It's basically a kind of critique of that way of thinking. And, and the reason is because I think it's quite a common way of thinking. Uh, I've, certainly, I've, I've certainly said stuff like this at times in my life. And maybe you've said this or thought this or at least heard this taught. Um, and uh, you might think, oh, that wasn't what, what, I, was ex what I was expecting. Uh, so, but hold on to your questions and, um, and hopefully um, I will be able to answer them for you. Um, but before I kind of get to the disagreements, what I want to do is try and help us to think what, why that statement seems to kind of feel right, why it feels good. I wonder, I wonder if anyone's bold enough to kind of say, why, why might that statement feel attractive? Why do you, or, you know, you might intuitively think, no, I agree with this. Any, any particular reasons why you think this would, you, you, someone might like this? Yes. Okay, so for not thinking that God's causing this in some way, but actually that he's with me and suffering. He's, yeah, that he's allowing this. He's going through it with me. He's not allowing it. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. Anyone else? Any? Yeah, go on. Is that like in Hebrews, Jesus describes like a high priest for yeah. suffering? So Jesus is a high priest and, and suffering. Absolutely, yeah. Anyone else? Yeah, go on. Someone's empathizing with you. Yeah, absolutely. It's very true, isn't it? It's very, it's very powerful, isn't it? Um, so, I, okay, well, great. We've mentioned some of these things. I want to go through why I think that statement feels attractive and has a certain power to it. Um, I think, that, you know, the idea that, you know, God is far above us, um, a God who is remote from suffering, seems and feels like a God who is austere, unkind, and unfeeling. 
It feels like a God who's a philosophical abstraction. Um, but a God who suffers, well, a God like that, surely he's more relatable, he's more empathetic. Um, you know, surely a suffering God can help us because he knows what it's like. Um, and doesn't, doesn't love involve some kind of vulnerability? Doesn't relationship involve some kind of risk? Isn't real love about opening yourself up to pain? Surely a suffering God is a loving God, a more loving God than a God who doesn't suffer. Um, and, and I guess someone might say, well, yeah, look, okay, I know, I know God's all-powerful and sovereign, but, but surely God can, you know, because he loves us, he can choose to suffer. He can choose to open himself up to this. He can make himself vulnerable. He can choose to be like that. And doesn't it also feel obvious when you think about Jesus? Our brother here mentioned about Jesus being the high priest. I mean, Jesus suffered, so surely that kind of <laughs> proves it, doesn't it, that, that, um, that God suffers. Um, God's come into our world, doesn't he? And he's died. What more is there to say? What more can you add to that? God has come alongside us, and he suffers with us. Um, and so in, in Jesus... God has taken our suffering, hasn't he? And, and, and he's brought it into himself. So here's another quote uh, for you from a guy, a, a New Testament scholar called Richard Bochum, Okay, The autocratic God of absolute power who simply presides over the suffering world and cannot himself be reached by suffering appears a cosmic monster. Very strong. It seems possible to justify God only if he too suffers. The only credible theology for Auschwitz is one that makes God an inmate of the place. It's very strong, isn't it? Very direct. It says, look, basically, you know, you look at some Auschwitz, surely the only credible God we can believe is a God who's, who's willing to come into that and suffer there. Okay, I'm trying to outline the argument for you. Why don't you just turn next to you? What do you think of that? Do you think that's a good argument if I... If I outlined it fairly, do you think, yeah, yeah. I don't know why Andy's disagreeing with that. That sounds all very sensible to me. Turn to the person next to you. Have a think. So what we're thinking about here, we're thinking about who God is uh, in the midst of, of all of this. So we, if we're, you know, we're making statements about what God must or should be. We need to think about who God is and think about that clearly. Uh, it is, this is obviously about uh, the topic of suffering, but what we do is we're not approaching the topic of suffering kind of pastorally or immediately. We're not going to the human person. We're thinking about God. So we're thinking about it theologically. But, and we're seeing how that the, theology impacts the pastoral or the personal. Okay? Um, so, so what we're thinking about here is a vision of God. What kind of God do we believe in? Who is this God? What is he like? And so there's a few technical words, okay, we need to get under our belts. And they're, they're on your sheets. Uh, first word is impassable. Okay, the word impassable, passable or impassable. Passable means suffering, or suffering, impassable means cannot suffer. Okay, it comes from Latin. So passable, impassable. Passable God is a God who can suffer, and impassable God is a God who cannot suffer. The second um, word we, we need to um, uh, get under our belt is mutable, changeable. Mutable, okay? So God, is God mutable? Can he change? Or is he immutable? Is he unchanging, unchangeable? Impassable, passable, immutable, mutable. So 
Mutable means subject to change. Mutable means unchanging. Passable means able to suffer. Impassable means unable to suffer. And it should be clear that mutability and passability go together. Whereas immutability and impassability go together. You can't have passability and immutability, and you can't have, in, uh, you can't have um, uh, impassability and mutability. They, 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 they don't work, okay? So to say that God suffers assumes that God is mutable and passable. To say that God cannot suffer is to say that God is immutable and impassable. Bit of a tongue twister. Everyone got that? Anyone think, what on earth is he talking about? Look at what I'm talking about. Yeah? Great. Put up your hand if you don't know what I'm talking about. Great. Okay. I'll go for it again. So, so what we say is, if you say that God, uh, so, so what we're saying, we're, we're talking about two different ideas of God, okay? Can, is, if you say that God cannot suffer, you're also assuming that God does not change. And I'll talk about that in a moment. If you say that God can suffer, you have to also say that God can change. Okay, and I'll, I'll come back to that. So do you think, oh, I'm, I don't quite see the logical connection. Hopefully I'll show it to you. But that's, that's the basic point. Is that a bit clearer? All right? Don't worry. That's good. We, 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 we want to go together. We want to sail together, okay? So we don't, we don't, we don't want to leave any, anyone behind here. Um, so what we talk about is different visions of God. Now, what I want to do here is I want to, I want to give you a vision of the impassable God. The God is impassable. And I want to, I want to argue... It's just loads, loads better. <laughs> loads, loads better. That God is impassable. Um, so when we say that God is impassable, we're, we're not just saying God doesn't suffer. We're saying that God cannot suffer. He cannot suffer. That's different, isn't it? Not just that he doesn't. It doesn't happen to you, but he cannot suffer. Um, now, of course, people who say that God uh, suffers, passibilists, those who say that God is passable, that God can suffer, Passivists argue that, that a God who doesn't suffer is stoical, indifferent, unconcerned, inert. He's remote, he's distant, and he's ultimately uncaring. I'm going to show you why that's wrong. Okay? So four reasons, I'm going to give you four reasons why the impassibility of God is, is actually a really faithful description of who God is. And I'm not just saying, I'm not just, I want to argue that this is true or right, that that is true. I want to argue that it's a beautiful and a good thing. First thing, impassibility is the overflow of perfection. It's the overflow of perfection. God is perfect. Hopefully that's not a controversial uh, statement in this room. God is perfect, he is, which means basically he is without fault, error, darkness, or sin. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And God's perfection must mean, if God is ultimately perfect, um, it must mean that God is maximally and fully all that he is. To be, because to be perfect means that you, you are maximally something, doesn't it? You are, you are something to the umpteenth. It can, it, it, when we say that God is perfect, what we're saying is the volume is turned up to the maximum on all his characteristics. You can't take it up anymore. So he has maximal love. He has maximal holiness. He has maximal goodness, maximal knowledge, maximal wisdom. There, there isn't any more to add in. The volume is turned completely up. There is no lack. There is no imperfection. There is no potential for more. You know, you and me, we've got lots of potential, don't we? We've got potential. You might feel our potential's ebbing away. 
But, you know, we can be something. You know, you could start, you know, start running. You know, and, you know, you may not be the fastest runner, but you've got potential for becoming a better runner. Um, you might, you know, start to learn to sing. And, you know, you've got, you know, may not be performing at the opera, but you've got potential to, you, certain things can, can, can be improved. That, but in God, there is nothing like that. God's love and holiness and goodness are maximum, not subject to any fluctuation. It is at the top level, and it never changes. So there's nothing in God that kind of needs to be activated. There's no potential in God. There's nothing that remains to be developed. There's no possibility in God for improvement. God is fully all that he ever could be. God is unimprovable. Now, passable God, a God who can suffer, is in a process. He's in a process of self-realization. And that self-realization comes through suffering. A passable God needs a fallen creation. He needs a fallen world to be empathetic. He needs to have a suffering world in order to be relatable, to really be properly loving. That's the whole point of the quote I showed you earlier. God who doesn't suffer isn't loving. And so God needs to have a suffering world in order to be able to be fully loving. And he needs, his, he needs kind of his suffering creatures to become a better God. And what, God, what, what, the, what you know, the, the person who argues for that has to say is that God God's, um, is developing through the course of interacting with a suffering world. He, he's becoming something. He's becoming something. And in a bizarre way, our suffering and our sin becomes a good thing because it enables God to be better. Enables God to get closer to perfection. And in that, it also means a suffering God is a changing God. Because the very assumption is that God can be acted upon from outside. Something can happen, and he can be afflicted and oppressed in some way. He can feel pain. Because to, and to suffer is to fluctuate. It's to change, isn't it? Um, if I come and stamp on your foot, you're like, ow! And you have a pain that you didn't have before. There's something that's changed in your bodily sensations. Something's changed in your mind. You've moved from a state of well-being to a state of affliction. You've moved from joy to discomfort, from blessedness to pain. And so suffering means that our emotional states are changing. They're in flux. They're going up and down. And so what it means is that God has become vulnerable to pain and suffering. Um, and so what you see is actually a God who can suffer is actually a very imperfect God because he's changing. Um, and actually, if you think, think about it like this, okay, I think sometimes, you know, like, um, like I was suggesting earlier, that people sometimes think, oh, if God suffers, it may, he's got empathy. It kind of means he's, uh, he's it's more relatable. But actually, think about it. God's suffering can never be like your suffering or my suffering. God is spirit. He doesn't have a body. Doesn't have, God can't have tumors growing in his body. He can't experience chronic pain. He doesn't, have, he doesn't have a mind like us. He can't be mentally ill. He can't be depressed. He can't have PTSD. In what sense could God's suffering ever be like ours? He's infinite. He knows everything. He's all-powerful he's all spirit. It's a very different experience. So actually, it's not actually that much of a comfort. God's suffering can never be like our suffering. Can it? It's utterly different. Not only does... The passability of God, if you say that God is passable, that he can suffer, not only does that undo his perfection, but actually brings no real comfort. And on a very basic level, it means you can't sing the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. You ever sung Great is, Your Fa- Great is Thy Faithfulness? 
You've sung that? Great is thy... You can't actually sing it if you think that God suffers because, listen to the words, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my, suff- my, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Saying so you don't change, God. You don't change. You will always be the same. The impassable God is unchangingly perfect, however. An impassable God cannot stop being perfect. He's always been the same. He's never fluctuated. He cannot fluctuate. He is the perfect, ultimate God who's maximally all that he is. Okay, there's a lot of stuff I've downloaded there. Your brain's full? A little bit, yeah? Turn to the person next to you. Have a think. What relevance does God's perfection have to you? What relevance does that have to you? Second thing, second reason to believe in impassable God. Impassibility is, necess- is necessary for salvation. It's necessary for salvation. A passable God, a God who can suffer, is like a, God, is like a doctor who injects himself with a virus that you're suffering with. So a doctor becomes a patient. Now the question is, is that, compa- is that compassion? Do you want a doctor who injects himself with your sickness, or do you want a doctor who cures you? If you're in Grenfell Tower and it's on fire, do you want a fireman to come in and burn himself alive with you, or do you want him to get you out? You want him to get you out. You want the doctors to cure you. Does a fireman lack compassion if he doesn't burn himself alive with you? No. No, that fireman is there to save you. And an and impassable God rescues us precisely because he's not, he's not overwhelmed by our suffering. We're overwhelmed by our suffering, but he is not, and his arms are strong. And he, is, he cannot be hurt by us. We want a God who can actually save us, not a God who needs to be rescued himself. And the fact is, God's perfect saving power is found in him not being like us. The fact that he's not like us, that he's not limited like us, that he doesn't suffer like us, is the very basis of his saving power. Now, you might think, yeah, but how about Jesus? Maybe you really think, yeah, but how about Jesus? How about Jesus? Don't worry, I haven't forgotten. I'm going to come back to that. So don't, don't, don't worry, I haven't forgotten that. Um, but to put it in theological jargon, we can say that God's, the fact that God is utterly different means that he can be fully present. The fact that God is utterly transcendent means he can be imminent. Uh, the fact he's far from all our limitations means he's free to save us. The fact that he's fully above means he can be utterly below with us. The fact that he's so different means he can be close to us. His utter difference means he can be a close in a way that does not limit him. God is the transcendent, immutable, perfect saviour. It is wonderfully comforting that there are strong arms that cannot be hurt in rescuing us. Thirdly, impassibility is necessary for ultimate love. It's necessary for ultimate love. Now, I already said in speaking of God's perfection, but I just want to drive this home a little bit with regards to God's love. Now, one of the, one of the, the arguments about God's suffering or God being passable is basically that God, that makes God truly loving, truly kind. But I want to argue, actually, the truth is the opposite. It's actually the opposite. The impassable God is a, is a God who does not change, and therefore he is a God who is utterly perfect. He's not lacking any quality. He's utterly maximal in all that he does. And what that means, if God cannot change, if God is immutable, it means his love cannot change. His love cannot fluctuate. Your love, my love, it changes, doesn't it? You're married, your love kind of goes up and down. Got kids, love goes up and down. Got friends, 
Love goes up and down, doesn't it? On Tuesdays, you're in a strop with someone. On Thursdays, you like them. Saturday, you're selfish. And you're, you're in the middle of your, your, your own sanctification. But that is not the case with God. God is not in the middle of his own sanctification. He doesn't have a strop on Tuesdays and have to recover and say sorry. God is ultimately perfectly loving, and he cannot be anything other than that. It's not just that God chooses to be loving. God is he's necessarily loving, perfectly loving in all that he does. It cannot be improved upon. You cannot, he cannot increase his compassion. He cannot turn the volume up on his generosity. He is not in process. He's not becoming something. It's not, God isn't in the process of becoming like Jesus, is he? We are, but he's not. What a wonderful, what a wonderful reality that is. God is love to the umpteenth. He's not learning. He's not acquiring. He's not getting better. But he is always and, all, and will be always supremely loving in every single thing he does. And he cannot be anything other than that. And what that means, nothing outside of God can cause virtues to exist in God. Because all, the, all virtues supremely and ultimately exist in him and always have, he's absolutely self-sufficient. And so everything that God does is the overflow of that. So God's maximal love is turned up to maximal volume all the time. It never changes. And so God doesn't need to suffer with us to become better. Because he always is perfect love. So the, so the idea that a God who doesn't come down and suffers is, is not perfect love... Um, it's actually utterly wrong. It actually is the opposite. It says that God's actually, if, if, if we say that God suffers, it's, we have to say that he's in a process of becoming something, that he's less than perfect, and he's trying to, you know, he's becoming something different. Now have a think about how might that, let's think about this together, how might that help someone who is suffering? How might that idea of God's maximal, unimprovable love help someone in the midst of their suffering? Any suggestions? God's not going to get bored of you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 He will always listen. Absolutely. Yeah. No. No, exactly. It's what Matt was preaching on this morning. It was Psalm 89, wasn't it? That, you know, we, we might go, what's going on here, Lord? I, I don't, I, you know, in ourselves, we, we may not understand, but the steadfast love of the Lord is always utterly perfect. We may not get what is going on. We may have our struggles with it, but, the, but God cannot be anything other than steadfast, perfect love. Now, I'm not suggesting you come out of this seminar, go up to someone in your congregation who's suffering, and say, well, do you know what? God's maximally loving. Don't, don't worry about it. I'm not, I'm not saying to use that theology unkindly or unwisely or without any kind of pastoral sense, but I'm just saying it is a, it is a bedrock um, that that we live, that our God really is an eternal loving refuge, and it cannot be anything other than that. In all the fluctuations and the changes of our lives, that it will be the same forever. Forever. Heaven is secure. You don't have to think, oh, is God going to be different in heaven? No. He cannot be anything other than that. Okay, last one. So again, to the meat of the issue. Impassibility is the assumption behind the incarnation. Impassibility is the assumption behind the incarnation. Now, that might sound a bit strange because I think for some, they might think the incarnation proves God's passibility. It proves that God can suffer. 
because surely, Andy, the incarnation is the great Achilles heel of your whole argument. I, I hear all that stuff about maximal stuff and God's perfect and can't. Okay, okay. But what about the incarnation? Like, how about Jesus? Jesus is God. We know that Jesus suffered. Isaiah 53, 4 says, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. So surely that's the answer to the question. Well, not so fast. Not so fast. In fact, I think the incarnation demonstrates the opposite. The opposite. Now, what we're going to do, we're going to do another deep dive into theology. Okay, we're going to think about the incarnation. Okay, so try and stay with, try and stay with me. Understand some some of these concepts a bit are, are um, I know maybe maybe it's one or two of, two of you have kind of read Augustine in the Latin, and you're kind of thinking, oh, this is easy peasy, uh, lemon squeezy. Others are kind of struggling. That's okay, but but we're going to try and do uh, try and try and get this clear in our heads. So, what do we mean by the incarnation? In the incarnation, what we mean is the the divine person of the Son, who is fully God, takes on a fully human nature, and he does that without losing any of his God nature in the process. So you have a very important distinction, okay, in theology. You have one person, the person of the Son, who has two natures. One person, two natures. Not two persons and one nature. One person, two natures. You have the divine person of the Son, who is fully God, has a fully God nature, and has a fully human nature. That is what is known as Chalcedonian Christology. It comes from a, a big... Um, a famous church council with this all hammered out in 451 AD. And all Christian churches have kind of subscribed to this, believe this, so this, this reflects the teaching of Scripture. Christian churches have always followed this. And it's very important. The, the, the two natures of Christ, the two natures of Christ are complete with all that those natures uh, require. They're fully both things. And they are not confused and they're not separated. So the human nature does not glow in the dark. And the divine nature does not empty itself. Jesus is not a hybrid. He's not a mixture. As fully son, he experiences everything that we experience uh, as human beings without son. As fully human, he is born. Fully, he's, he thirsts. He hungers. He feels pain. He feels weakness. He suffers. He dies. And yet, the son also remains fully God with all, his, all the infinite attributes of God. He is also spirit. He's omnipresent. He is omniscient. He is eternal. And the Son acts according to both natures by each nature doing what is proper to that nature. So the Son exists eternally in his divine nature. His human nature is not divine, is not, has not existed eternally. The Son upholds all things in his, in his divine nature. But the Son was born in time in Bethlehem. The Son suffered and died in his human nature. And so we uphold the distinction of those two natures without separation. Any questions on that? Was that clear enough or not? Everyone really confused? Okay. Um, now that said, I'm gonna, okay, I've got one more big, big concept, okay? And this is something called the communication of the attributes. Got that? Communication of the, let's say that together. The communication of the attributes, okay? Now what that means is the characteristics of each nature can be attributed to the person of the Son. So in Acts 20, 28, it says this. Uh, Paul the Apostle says this to the elders in the Ephesian church. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Does God have blood? No, God does not have blood. Do human beings have blood? Yeah, they do. God bought the church with his own blood. 
That's called the communication attribute. So basically, what, what's happening there? God doesn't have a body. God doesn't bleed. That doesn't bleed. But you can say that God died in the sense that the divine person of the Son bled in his human nature. And so you can say God. You can say if if if, if God did not die in 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 the sense of his uh, the the eternal Spirit who has created all things died, but God in his human nature in the incarnation died uh, in our place as a man. And what that means is that the Son, in his human nature, can save us not because he entered into our world and took on a human nature, but also because he's not simply a um, a human being like us. He can save us because he's uh, the eternal Son. In Jesus, we have this. We have the impassable God and a passable man. We have life and one who dies. We have one who is unimprovable and one who, is, who has potential. We have one who is the sovereign ruler, but one who is the weak sufferer. We have one who is eternal and unchanging, but one who lives in time. We have eternal spirit and one who has bodily suffering. We have God above and priest below. We have the judge of all and the one who is meek and lowly. We have one who lives in eternal bliss and glory and one who's experienced pain. That is our great saviour who brings together impossibilities. Passable man and impassable God. And he can help us. He can save us. Because he is both the sympathetic high priest and mighty God. That's the glory of Jesus. He brings together things that could not be brought together in any other way. And he brings those things together in himself without confusion or without separation. He is what no one else is and does what no one else can do. And the incarnation actually helps us to see why it's so problematic to say God suffers. Because the fact, if you say God suffers, what you're saying is that the Son of God did not need to become incarnate. Because God suffers already. God could have just carried our sin. He didn't need to take on a human nature. He didn't need to be born in Bethlehem because he could already suffer. But Acts 3.18 tells us this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. God suffers in his Messiah on the cross. That was the plan. So the incarnation actually assumes that God does not suffer because otherwise Jesus wouldn't need to have been born in Bethlehem. And this is what's so remarkable. The Son, from all eternity, keeps his impassable nature and yet takes, takes upon himself a human, weak, passable nature. What a wonderful saviour we have. We don't need a God who suffers because we've got a passable, impassable saviour. Isn't that wonderful? That is the gospel message. Now, if your head hurts, it's okay. My head is hurting as well. And what that teaches us is that there is more to learn. There's more to grow in. There's more, there's more to dig in. And knowing I haven't come to the end of my Christian experience or my knowledge of God, there's always more to learn as we think about God today. Let me pray. And if anyone wants to come and have a chat and ply me with your questions, feel free. Uh, the, uh, it's quarter past six, but, um, so I thought I'd, I'd, uh, I'd finish there. But, um, but do, uh, do come and have a chat. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you are our God. Exalted, glorious, wonderfully impassable, wonderfully unchanging. You are our eternal Savior, and great is thy faithfulness. 
because you do not change and your mercies do not change. Your love does not increase. It, it's not more perfectible. It is always what it is. And yet, living God, you have sent your Son and your Lord Jesus, we praise you. It, there are mysteries here. As we look at you and we behold you in the eyes of faith and we think on you as our wonderful God and our suffering Messiah, the one who is exalted above all things, upholding all things with, uh, with your word, and yet you come and, and die in the dust with us. And we don't, we, we don't understand these things. We, they are beyond our capacity to, to truly grasp. But we praise you, Lord Jesus. Help us to press into these things and pray for any brothers and sisters here today who are in the midst of really difficult things. Pray that this wonderful gospel, this truth, would be of, a, of massive comfort to them. We praise you, Lord Jesus, our great Saviour. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. And stay tuned for more great talks from Revive. See you next time.